Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, thanks again for all of the the well wishes and and condolences and all of that. Um, um, I'll probably have talked about this in the solo podcast, but uh, I'm doing one of these time travel things where we're recording this on Thursday, November three, and this won't uh, this won't go out until essentially. Um, um, my brain's not working out. Oh, we won't go out until after the elections next week. So um, we're not going to be talking about anything. My view is there's nothing to say on election day or immediately afterwards. Um, um, and that won't be said a thousand other places. And so we're going to kind of counter program. But we are going to talk a little bit about some stuff that happened last night. And I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, I'm very excited for our guest. This is a second time on The Remnant. Uh, I, I'm going to avoid my normal caveats about how... Uh, Brookings Delenda Est, um, and just say that uh, Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow in, uh, in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings and an assistant research professor of Islamic studies at, at the Fuller Seminary. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, vice chair of the Project on Middle East uh, Democracies Board of Directors, and his new book, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea is out. Uh, Shadi, welcome back to The Remnant. Hi, Jonah. Thanks for having me. Um, so full disclosure to people, uh, as I was explaining to you beforehand, I've had a difficult time lately, so I have not read the book yet. Um, I've read some excerpts and I've been poking around, but uh, that makes it easier for me to ask you my favorite question for authors. Uh, what's your book about? <laughs> yeah, uh, good question to start with. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the book is called The Problem of Democracy. So I am trying to address what I consider to be the central question for us as people who care about the future of democracy, if in fact we care about it, not everyone does, obviously. Um, and that question to me is, what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? Is democracy good because of its outcomes or in spite of its outcomes. And um, just to kind of bring that more down to ground level in practical terms, um, I draw on cases from the Middle East to illustrate this broader dilemma. So during the Arab Spring, you have um, free and fair elections for the first time in many of these countries, Egypt, Tunisia, and so on. And democracy was nice in theory until people started to realize what democracy entailed in practice. And, and that theory practice divide is an important one because when people experience democracy in real life, 
It can be scary. It can feel existential. And of course, it's uncertain at some fundamental level. I mean, uh, the, the great thing, but also the scary thing about democracy is that you don't know who's going to win before they win you know, most of the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, so what we had in the Middle East was a situation where um, Islamist parties, so by that I mean groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, a group uh, parties that believe that Islam should play a central role in public life. They believe in some implementation of Islamic law, although people, you know, they differ on how they might define that. And so these parties do well in elections and they start to win, you know, for example, in a country like Egypt. So then a lot of secular and liberal elites, they come back and they say, well, if this is what democracy means, we're not sure that we particularly like it or want it because, If democracy is good, then it should lead to good outcomes. If it doesn't lead to good outcomes, then what's the point? So this Mm -hmm. is where I I see the outcomes-oriented approach to democracy to be a potentially dangerous one. If you only believe in democracy, if it leads to other things that you like, then you're not really a small-D Democrat. It shouldn't be contingent on the outcome. So... Uh, so that that to me is really at the center of the dilemma. And obviously, as you can probably tell, Jonah, this is relevant not only to the Middle East, but to a lot of places in the world, Brazil, Israel, uh, Italy, Poland, Sweden, and of course, here in the U.S. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of ironic um, that we're talking about this today because uh, Joe Biden gave this, and we're going to come back to the themes of the book, but it's just like this is like an actual news bag that we kind of stumbled into. Joe Biden gave this... Um, speech at Union Station, though you would have no idea from looking at the video that it was at Union Station. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> you didn't know he gave the speech no, no. or that it was at Union Station? Union Station, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think what happened is they, they wildly over, the advanced people wildly overcorrected for the Philadelphia speech, which was like, you know, the, the dark Brandon meme speech. And so instead, it just looks like it was shot at a Ramada. Um, and... But anyway, it was basically the same speech, a little more condescending, a little less dramatic. <laughs> and um, uh, and I want to be very clear, I'm, I'm very much against the election denier people, all the Trumpy people uh, uh, who want to screw with faith in the integrity of elections are doing bad things to bad people. But it's, it's weird. It's sort of like um, and a rarefied uh, sort of progressive elite version of a Trumpy argument that he made last night insofar as he basically said, if you believe in democracy, you have to vote for my party. Yes. And that, and if you, that this is an existential crisis and the future of democracy is, is on the line. And if you, um, and if you vote for the other people, you're voting against democracy, which is a really undemocratic small D way. It's very much flight 93 election talk at a sort of higher level of abstraction. And I was, I was just wondering, what did you, what did you think about it? Yeah. So I, I shared a lot of your concerns, Jonah. I mean, I, I found some parts of it to be disturbing. I sort of knew what it was going to be. I think it wasn't a surprise, but I, I guess I hoped that maybe a few days before the midterm elections that maybe some of Biden's advisors would maybe advise him to soften the rhetoric or at least acknowledge some internal fault. I mean, one issue I had with the speech is that 
there was no self-criticism at all. I mean, if you're an mm-hmm. alien from outer space and you, you know, watch that speech, you'd think that the Democrats are this pristine, perfect party and all of them love democracy and are willing, you know, they're just so faithful to these principles and ideas. Of course, in the real world, it's it's a little bit more complicated. And for example, I mean, could Biden have said something about Uh, acknowledging that Republicans after 2016 had some legitimate grievances when it came to how Trump was delegitimized and that there were some there were some Democrats who didn't really accept that he was the legitimate president. And thankfully, um, Hillary Clinton wasn't as bad as Donald Trump four years later. But, you know, Hillary, after she lost to her credit, she did immediately concede But as recently as 2019, she was still referring to her loss as a stolen election. Um, So, you know, there there are things that we can look at. And Russiagate, not to kind of open up a can of worms, but um, was all of that, was this endless investigation that, um, I mean, it did contribute to a delegitimization of the perception of of the delegitimization of Donald Trump among among many Americans. Maybe that was fine, but there are things to be concerned about there. So one thing he could have done was to acknowledge that Republicans had their own concerns, maybe not to draw a moral equivalency. I don't believe they're equivalent. And just to be clear, um, January 6th is 10 times worse than anything Democrats might have done in 2016 or 2017. And election. I agree with yeah, that yeah. So yeah. there's no moral equivalency, but you know, they don't have to be equivalent for you to acknowledge that the other side ha- did have some concerns. Right. But basically, yeah. uh, but I think the main thrust of the speech and I joked on Twitter, uh, well, it wasn't a joke because it's more or less what Biden communicated that this is the way I summed, <laughs> I summed up the, uh, the speech. It's basically Biden saying democracy is dying. Therefore to save democracy, you must vote for my party. If you vote for the other party, you are helping democracy die. Democracy is on the ballot and there is only one choice. So a variation of what you what you described earlier as well. And that to me is contrary to the democratic spirit for sure. And I'm just sad to see that a lot of people are defending the speech as totally necessary um, and pro-democracy. And, and I mean, their view is that the Republican Party is basically, I guess, um, evil beyond the pale, that um, there is only one party that you can vote for if you are a moral good person. And I just can't get on board with that kind of messaging. Yeah. Well, so like, I agree with you that some self-criticism would be worthwhile. It seems to me, my hunch is that you'll probably agree with me to some extent, a better form of self-criticism as political strategy wouldn't be to sort of get into the Trump morass of defending the Russia, you know, Trump's complaints about the Russia probe, but instead saying, Hey, look, something like my party made a mistake in this midterm. My party spent a lot of money to get people on the ballot who are election deniers, which they did. The democratic party spent tens of millions of dollars privileging, you know, intervening in primaries to get like, you know, the, the, you know, what's his name, Pete Meyer in, in Michigan, who voted for impeachment. Democrats spent money on his opponent, who's an election denier and a freak, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, and you have this in throughout California, Pelosi is directed, you know, through her PACs and whatever, because they all thought they'd be easier to beat. Now I get hardball politics, I really do. And like in 2012, that's 
that ha- this has happened many times, you know, in, in the past, but you can't simultaneously argue that the, the sort of Doug Mastriano types, and they spent money to get him the nomination too, um, that the Doug Mastriano types are an existential threat to democracy and that they will destroy democracy if they are put in power and also spend money to get them the nomination <laughs> to make it easier for them to become elected. The cynicism of it is profound. And, and I think that like, like I, I'm willing to hear from people complain about the, the, the threats to democracy because I think there are some real threats to democracy and I want to get to them. But like the, it's very much, you know, in the, in the Reichstag, and I'm only using this as sort of purposes of the syllogism, right? Yeah. I'm not saying it's the same thing. But you know, a lot of the the communists supported a lot of the Nazi stuff in the Reichstag in the early days on the theory of first brown then red. They had this convoluted sort of warmed over uh, replay of the French Revolution theory of how things would work, and if the the Browns would destroy the bourgeois democratic regime, and then the Reds would come in behind them and seize power. And the kind of cynicism that says, yeah, these people are morally equivalent to Nazis, and that's their rhetoric, not mine, but let's get them the nomination because it'll be a little easier to beat them in a general election is so profoundly cynical when you're making these arguments about the threat to democracy. It, you know, exactly, yeah. Um, it, there's sort of a... a there's a paradox here because if you really did think that this election was existential, if you really did think that the Republican Party was a threat to everything that you held dear and the future of the Republic, then you wouldn't take chances. You wouldn't boost people like uh, like Mastriano. You, you wouldn't even think about it. The thought would be abhorrent to you morally, politically. And the fact that... Democrats don't realize that suggests that they don't actually, they're not treating this as an existential battle. So they, they want to have their cake and eat it. They're saying that, um, you know, all of these things are at stake, vote for us, but then they're not actually following, following through with their own premises. And I, you know, it's not for me to explain how they kind of conceptualize that gap or that inconsistency, but I do think it is incoherent. If you really believed that our democracy was at stake, you wouldn't alienate people with crazy, like hyper woke policies. If you really wanted to peel uh, pro-democracy Republicans who were anti-Trump or anti-MAGA, you would actually make an effort to persuade them to vote for your party you wouldn't have such a hard, uh, such a hardcore approach on say, you know, abortion. You would try to actually come up with a safe, legal, rare formulation. Um, you wouldn't emphasize a lot of the controversial gender identity politics stuff that is putting off a lot of Democrats themselves. So, you know, talking to brown, brownish Arab Muslim voters and friends who would normally vote Democrat without question, the fact now that they are debating about that, and not to mention Hispanics, we have, we've seen so much evidence of a potential brown backlash, a brown rebellion, mm-hmm. if you will, against the Democratic Party. If you really wanted to build a broad pro-democracy coalition, you would tamp down the divisive right. identity politics rhetoric they're not doing that which suggests that they don't they don't actually believe that the future is at stake or if they do they're being inconsistent about it yeah no i mean i i agree with that entirely i mean one of the great ironies is that 
the the sort of woke, super progressive, white, college educated, sort of Bernie bro adjacent and Obama, you know, alum, people who run the Democratic Party, um, they are way to the left of your average person of color, right, yeah. in this country. And going into schools and doing the transgender stuff and all of these various things is a great way to make socially conservative economically liberal kind of, you know, Hispanic and black people and Muslim people and whatever um, say, what am I doing with this party? And um, I welcome it to a certain extent as someone who has given up on the Republican party, but is still a conservative. I would love for both parties to be um, equally diverse. Um, I think it would be good for the country. I think it, the assumption that the, the, the old assumption that that non-white skin color is predictive for all time of your, of your liberal voting is really poisonous to the country in part because of what it elicits from white people. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so I, I, I welcome some of that. I, I, I want, I want two normal parties again and we're not there. you know, that's why we can't have nice things, but, um, all right. So let's, let's, let's swing back to uh, the thesis of the book. You write about, democratic minimalism, which I think I agree with, but why don't you explain it first? This is an idea I've been developing for a while. And I, you know, I try to explain it in more depth in the book. So part of it is about decoupling different things that are part of the democratic package. So I think that a lot of Americans, when they think democracy, they assume that it's liberal democracy and that liberalism and democracy go hand in hand. And part of what I want to do is decouple those concepts. And just to be clear, I mean, when I talk about liberalism here, I'm talking about the classical liberal tradition, right. not about like owning the libs in the kind of modern partisan sense. Uh, Rule of law, property rights, limited government, due process, free speech, that stuff. Yeah, minority rights, gender equality, yeah. um, anything yeah, yeah. that is um, per personal freedoms, per, uh, individual autonomy, um, prioritizing the individual over the collective, a reason over revelation, um, a somewhat restricted role for religion. Not, and people can debate ex about where exactly to draw that line. But these are these are things that animated the liberal tradition. And then there's democracy, which is much more focused on uh, alternation of power through regular elections, being responsive to the will of the voters, um, and a mechanism for choosing leaders in a very basic sense. And I would like to shift the focus to the latter. Instead of thinking that democracy is going to give us liberal outcomes, that it's necessarily going to lead us to gender equality or more minority rights or being nicer to immigrants or addressing economic inequality, those could happen, but they're not intrinsic to the democratic idea. And I think we've been conflating a lot of these things because as Americans, especially, we like the idea of good things going together. So it sort of goes back to this idea that if democracy is good, then of course it's going to lead to things, other things that we think are good, right? But that's obviously not the case um, as we're seeing more and more in various countries. So I, in some ways I want to... I, want, I don't want to project too much of a burden on the democratic idea, because if we treat democracy as a panacea, we're going to be disappointed. Our expectations are going to be shattered, and that's going to lead to a disillusionment. 
So instead, democratic minimalism is about talking about democracy in this more minimalist sense. And it's a way to bring us back, brag, back down to earth and to be more realistic about what democracy can accomplish. And there's other examples that I think Biden, Biden does this a lot. He talks about how democracy should produce consensus or democracy should lead to unity or democracies should be able to show that they can compete with China on efficiency and getting things done and having a streamlined process, you know, on infrastructure or whatever it happens to be. But that, again, that is not what democracy is about. So I think the decoupling helps us have more conceptual clarity on something that I think is becoming more and more confusing to, uh, to, to a lot of people, but certainly to Americans. I got a, I'm holding a lot of paper on this stuff. Um, and uh, just to be clear, I've been sort of a, a relentless foe of the cult of unity for a really long time. And if you Google Jonah Goldberg and cult of unity, you'll have way too much stuff to read. I agree with all of that. I, I've always put that my, my view of democracy has always been, yeah, it does have moral content for sure, right? The consent of the governed is a moral good thing. It's not a neutral thing. But in practical terms, what we should think, we should think about it in as a, as a hedge against bad outcomes, not a guarantor of good outcomes. Um, and, you know, seatbelts are a pain in the ass until you need them. Right. And like, you know, oh, it was great fun wearing seatbelts today. Um, similarly, like democracy is kind of a pain in the ass. It's doesn't, it's not, I mean, unless you're a politics addict, it's just, it's, it's annoying. But it's a great hedge against really bad outcomes. And, um, and I, as a sort of a conservative of a certain stripe, I've always believed that I would, if I had to choose between living in a liberal country, um, in the liberal that we're talking about, or a democratic country, nine and a half times out of 10, I'm picking liberal, right? I mean, I, I, if we could have angels as judges guaranteeing my rights guaranteeing due process, guaranteeing the equality before the law and property rights, all that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that I want voting to guarantee. That's why I vote is to protect that stuff. The, the voting is a means to the end. Yeah. So I agree with you on all that. The place I'll push back on you just a tiny, tiny bit. Um, and you can take it wherever you want is you still consider yourself a man of the center left or thereabouts, right? Yep. I would argue that you said, because we're Americans, we think all good things go together. And I think as a cultural thing, there's some truth to that, to be sure. But I would argue that that, that worldview has much more, do, more to do with essentially, for want of a better term, progressive metaphysics. That it is a philosophically, ideologically progressive commitment that believes that all good things go together. And one of my central views of conservatism is the, is, as a philosophical matter, is that it's... Um, it's comfortable with contradiction that, you know, conservatives, you talk to any conservative economist, any conservatives read as Tom Sowell or any of that kind of stuff, or Edmund Burke will say stuff like politics is about trade-offs. Governing is about trade-offs. You know, if, if you, you can only spend $1 once, all that kind of thing. If you listen to liberal and progressive groups talk, it often sounds like they're testifying at a religious thing. I don't believe that we should live in a country where this comes at the expense of that, that we can't have a clean environment and healthy kids, that we can't, have a roaring economy and fight climate change. And 
at the policy matter, that might be possible, but that's not the way it sounds to people. It is that there's this unity of goodness thing. There's this harmony in all things. Everything clicks together. That is the essence of fascism. It is the essence of communism. It is the essence of all totalitarian regimes. I'm not saying the progressives are all fascists and totalitarians, but as a metaphysical thing, the liberal and American conservative point of view is about checks and balances. It's about trade-offs. It's about limited governments, about divided government. It is much more philosophically comfortable with the idea that unity is dangerous and scary if you read the Federalist Papers, then uh, the left tradition is. So have at it. Yeah, you know, and I, I like a lot of what you said. It's interesting that you emphasize that conservatives are more comfortable with complexity and nuance and contradiction. Of course, as you're probably aware, liberal, I mean, um, progressives and Democrats in America today, they, they tend to think they're the ones who believe, they believe in complexity and truth and facts mm-hmm. and science and knowledge. And it's worth, it's worth complicating that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you just did because I, that it, no, that, I don't want to be clear. I agree with, I, I, I don't, what I, what the stuff I'm saying now, there's a reason this podcast is called the remnant, right? <laughs> this is not, I am not describing contemporary Republicans or most of the people you're going to hear on talk radio or on, on Fox. I'm talking about, no, you're talking about a tradi- an intellectual tradition, the conservative intellectual tradition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it is an interesting question why people who are ostensibly conservatives don't follow their own conservative tradition and have diver- diverged from it considerably. But that's, you know, that's a, a question for a different time. But yeah, so I look, I mean, I'm not happy with my own side. And there's some people who want to disown me. And they don't think that I am left of center. Or, or, or liberal uh, in American politics today. I mean, what, what can I say? People can think of, think whatever they want about me. I still consider mm-hmm. myself to be left of center uh, because of my um, preferences on economic policy and addressing, you know, addressing inequality in various ways through redistribution. Um, I don't have a huge problem with deficit spending or, or state intervention in the economy, obviously within reason, but... Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of it, but also as a minority, I think that I came of age in the post nine 11 context and mm-hmm. I, the Republican party really put me off. I mean, my parents in 2020, uh, sorry, 2000, they voted for George W. Bush. And at that time people might forget, uh, um, most Arabs and, and, and m- most Arabs and Muslims leaned Republican in part because mm-hmm. of the social conservatism that they saw in the Republican Party, family values and all that. But after 9-11, um, Patriot Act, civil rights abuses, the, uh, the kind of increase in anti-Muslim sentiment, I mean, that was a big part of how I came to, you know, to see the Democratic Party as my tribe, my home, even though I think they're lousy for all the reasons that people are probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, sometimes they almost seem to want to lose on purpose. They're not particularly efficient or effective, all that sort of thing. So I, that's still sort of where I'm at. But yeah, at some point, if the Democratic Party keeps on becoming crazy, you know, maybe on the local level, I'll have to think about you know, voting for the non-democratic candidate. I don't know. Um, so that's, that's definitely 
yeah, that's definitely a concern that I have. Uh, I also am not comfortable voting for Republicans, even on the local level, because I do think they are worse when it comes to respecting democratic outcomes. Um, so as much as I criticize Biden and Democrats on how they aren't respecting small D democracy. And when I ask some of my, you know, liberal friends, like, what will you do if Donald Trump wins fair and square in 2024? Will you respect that outcome and consider it to be legitimate? The fact that many of them are not willing to give me a straight answer makes me nervous. I think Mm -hmm. we're going to have to test that out and see what happens. And it doesn't even have to be Trump. It could be DeSantis. And now I think it's crazy that you hear more and more Democrats talking about how DeSantis is like almost like just as bad as Trump, maybe even worse because he's a competent version of Trump, which also suggests that you're not serious because if you're putting DeSantis in the same bucket as um, crazy MAGA election deniers, then you're basically saying that any like most Republicans, you'll find a way to put them in that basket. So that's, you know, that's concerning to me. So those are that's sort of where I'm where I'm at in terms of thinking about the midterms in 2024. Um, but um, yeah, there aren't great choices. Yeah, look, I mean, I agree with you about the. I mean, Biden, I think made an. Let me try that as an analogy. I used this the other day on a different podcast. Um, the the getting back to sort of the Biden approach to this, Major League Baseball has a major investment in the integrity of the game. If if you were just allowed every team that lost just said, well, that's not the real score. The game's over, right? It just, it's going to, it's the end of the game of baseball. If the final score is not considered final, um, you know, barring some extremely weird, you know, contentious one, one in a million kind of situation. Um, the score on the board should be the score. Right. And, um, and if you're the commissioner of major league baseball and you go around saying, um, our institution of democracy, our institution of baseball is so vital. It's America's pastime. It's great and all that kind of stuff. And we just want to make sure that the game is played fairly. And then um, it turns out that you are also simultaneously doing everything you can to make sure the Yankees win the World Series every year. It just ruins the credibility of the, the point, right? I mean, that's what Biden's doing is he wants to simultaneously have the courage and the conv- the courage of calling out these real threats to democracy while at the same time saying, uh, but be using it for partisan ends. And I think that that's, that's the sort of dilemma on all of that. But I want to, I want to get back to this point about democratic minimalism. I think, you know, one of the points that you make is a part of the point of, of democracy. One of the values of democracy is just rotating people in power. Right. And this is one of the insights that, James Madison had, which was like the way you run a democracy, the way you, the way he wanted to set up the country was that it was just constant elections in this country. We have elections all the time, you know, at least one a year, (laughs) um, depending on what level of government we're talking about, at least. And, um, and I think you can make a very instrumentalist case that anywhere there, a single party has been in power for a very long time at any level of government just vote the other party in Um, because you just get sclerotic. You get built up of, you know, uh, machine and self-protection rackets. I grew up in New York city in the 1970s and eighties. And I got to tell you the, the secret to a big chunk of Rudy Giuliani's success as mayor before he went crazy 
um, was simply was from the other party. And so he didn't have to like tip off everybody about what he was doing and get buy-in from or whatever, from, from, from all the party hacks. And he could actually just sort of clear out a lot of garbage that had built up over time. If there were more Republican machines, I would say vote Democratic. But I think at the local level and at the, even at the state level, just getting the churn is itself healthy for the country. Totally. And I, I especially feel this way because I happen to live in a one-party proto-state. And I, maybe you live there too? Yeah, you, you must because you're like down the street from me. <laughs> do you live in D.C. or do you live I'm in D.C. In proper, yeah. Yeah, I live in D.C. too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, and you do see the drawbacks of just one-party domination. So, yeah, this is the thing. Like, democracy is inelegant. It seems chaotic. It's messy. We have elections all the time, but we at least we don't have presidential elections, like, all the time. Like, when you look at a country like Israel, they have they have prime ministerial elections like seemingly constantly, like every few months at this point. And I'm only vaguely exaggerating yeah. here. And people can look at that and say, oh my God, this is just, look how inefficient these modern democracies are. Why can't we have something like the Chinese model? And then in the Chinese model, first of all, it's no longer a model. And we're seeing the inherent weaknesses of not being able to get rid of the leader. So China seemed really impressive when you had one leader on top who seemed to be making smart decisions. He was getting things done. He seemed to have an effective response to COVID. The economy was still growing rapidly, um, so on and so forth. But then you're still putting a lot of stock in that one leader. And if he starts to stumble, you have no recourse. There is nothing you can do to undo those bad outcomes. And I think I'm glad to see that more people are realizing this and that the Chinese example has been sort of declining in the popular imagination. But there aren't really benevolent dictatorships. Usually people right. will mention Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore, but the fact that you have to mention a, a relatively small city state that's pretty rich as your example of when perpetual one-party rule is effective, that tells you something. It's not replicable, especially in a country as large as ours. I mean, democracy becomes most useful in large, diverse societies because you have all these people, all of us Americans, we don't agree on what the common good is. We don't any longer agree on what it means to be American. We have fundamental differences on the biggest questions. But what democracy allows us to do, it says, well, we're not going to resolve those questions, but we can at least have a mechanism to regulate conflict and to God willing, see our opponents not as enemies, but as just opponents. And this is a problem I have also with Biden's kind of rhetoric. It brings us closer to a situation where we see Trump supporting Republicans as beyond the pale, that they are not actually opponents or, or adversaries, they are enemies who must be defeated. Defeat. And you can't have a final defeat in a democracy because the other side should have a chance to come back and contest elections next time around. The loser always has a chance to get back in the position of the winner. So that to me is what democracy offers. And it's a beautiful idea. It seems minimal, and perhaps it is in some ways, 
But when you really appreciate what that allows us to do as Americans, it is really a remarkable thing. And that's why I'm pretty, I'm pretty bullish on American democracy and people, people, uh, you know, were attacking me for just saying, you know, whenever I say something nice about American democracy, proving its resilience, you know, you have folks on the left side of the spectrum who act like I'm crazy. Like has Shadi gone insane? How can he say this about America? I, I, what can I say? I love America. And I think this is also another difference between children of immigrants and white liberals. Um, and that's why I actually hope that going forward, you know, if, if white liberals really don't like this country, then they have an option to consider, I don't know, Switzerland or something or Denmark, if they want to like emigrate. I, but you know, that's why the more Brown people we have, that could actually be better for just pride in the American idea, believing that this country is pretty amazing for all of its faults. Um, and the fact that, uh, so, you know, um, people who have been here for generations have just like lost sight of that. It's just sad to see. No, I agree. Like the, the conclusion at the end of my last book was that the real answer to a lot of our problems is gratitude. Like if you, if you, if you could appreciate how good we have it as Americans, as Western democracies, as people in the late, uh, the early 21st century it is just a huge you know, if you were going to go from behind the veil of ignorance, the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, you'd pick pretty much now and pretty much um, United States or possibly Canada or whatever. But you would, this is, this is a, an amazing time to be alive. And this is a, an amazing country. And I, I agree with that. And I also agree that like one of the great ironies of the right these days is that the, the, a lot of the immigrants that they're denouncing. I mean, I remember, I'm old remember when Pappy Cannon was talking about how these Hispanics are coming here and they're importing their, these crazy ideas about La Raza and they're going to, the Reconquista and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that we're importing patriots. <laughs> you know, yeah. We're actually importing people who love this country because there's a selection bias. Like, you're not going to move to some country you hate, right? You know, and like people know what the sales pitch is for America. And, um, but, all right, so let's talk about, so part of my theory about what's wrong is, well, let's back up. So this idea, which, uh, you know, I've talked a bunch about with Yuval Levin, is that part of the problem with our politics is that we don't have elections about solving problems. We have elections about solving the problem of our enemies, right? Yeah. And then, so each party pitches to each their own side, like, this is the election where we're finally going to destroy them. And we're not, you know, we're just friggin' not. And, and that's the wrong framing. And, um, and I think that part of it is, is that partisan affiliation now maps in America very much like religious or ethnic sectarianism. And that's a real problem for a democracy. And so I was wondering, you know, sort of in that context, you know, like talk about why it's, uh, it's been difficult to, from the ground up or from without get democracy up and running in a large part of the Middle East. You know, to, to your point on, yeah, there are no permanent victories or right. there shouldn't be, we shouldn't see our politics that way. So I remember when people used to hype up the idea of a permanent democratic majority or a permanent Republican majority, that is anti-democratic in spirit. You should never want your majority to be permanent in a democracy. 
Um, you should also never say things like this is the most important election of your lifetime. Well, first of all, it's not possible that every single election is the most important election of your lifetime. Like at some point, they can't all be that simultaneously. But all of this is about thinking that your enemies can be defeated. And I've never gotten a good answer when I push people on this. Like, okay, the the Trump supporters, they exist. There's a lot of them. There's tens of millions of them. 74 million people or so voted for Donald Trump. What is your, like, what do you want? What do you want? You know, when it comes to the Middle East, I think, again, some of the lessons are instructive. And I remember, you know, when I was living in the Middle East during the Arab Spring, um, I actually thought that the Middle East was unique because I was comparing, um, so 2012 in Egypt compared to 2012 in America, um, Barack Obama was still our president. And we were debating things like universal health care and tax rates and Obama's tan suit. We, we weren't yet in this mode of talking about the founding. Do we have to redate the founding? Do we have to reconceptualize the very meaning of being American? Do we have to, you know, the, we were still, you know, within a certain kind of confined situation. Then I come back to DC in 2014, the lead up to 2016 with Donald Trump. And then I start to think to myself, wait, I've seen echoes of this in the Middle East. People aren't debating economic policy. No, as far as I can tell, not many people looked at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's policy prescriptions on their respective websites and said, oh, wow, these policy prescriptions are really compelling. I'm going to change my mind and vote for the other person. No, it was an identity thing. It was about... Um, you know, these existential, these perceptions of existential threat and what America would become and so on and so forth. And, um, and what we learned from the Middle East and what we learned from other divided societies where people diverge on culture, identity, and religion. And in the Middle East, it's primarily about the role of religion in public life. But of course, that affects culture and identity in complex ways. But how do you compromise on religion? How do you compromise on identity? You can't split the middle on them. So at some level, if you want to have a democracy in a country like Egypt, both sides will have to come to terms with that reality that there's never going to be a definitive answer to some of these ultimate questions. That's hard, though, for people. That's hard for people to come to terms with. And it just, you know, my, and, you know, some of this was personal for me. Like I'm, bo I'm born and raised in, in Pennsylvania, but originally Egyptian. And my Egyptian relatives became vociferous anti-Democrats. They would say things to me like, Shadi, you come with your ideas about democracy, but you don't have to live with the consequences of democracy. You can go back to the U.S. anytime you want. So if the Muslim Brotherhood wins, we're going to have to live with that. And you know what? We're not willing to test that out. And then so many of them supported a military coup that overthrew the democratically elected government that was led by a Muslim Brotherhood leader. Um, so, you know, that that has had a big impact on on my own thinking. And so we all have to challenge ourselves. We have to put ourselves in the position where let's imagine the worst case scenario in in the election that we're voting in. If the other side who we hate, 
or we think we hate wins, how are we going to deal with that? Is there a way that we're going to be able to process that? And it's interesting. I, and I can be, I've said this publicly before and I know it's, and there's nothing bad about like men crying, I don't think, but on the night of the election in 2016, I actually did cry. I hope that's not like a, a weird thing or anything, but I cried in part because I was really worried about like my mom wears the headscarf. My parents are visibly, I don't, they're, they're Americans, but people can tell that, you know, there's other things there too. And, and, and they, you know, my, my dad has, you know, speaks with an accent, like a lot of immigrants, you know, all that. So I was worried to be visibly Muslim when Trump had been talking about banning Muslims from entering the country. And he, he would say crazy things like entertaining the possibility of registering Muslims in a database. Like people forget the four years of Trump being in power were kind of a relief to me. I thought it was, I thought it could have been a lot worse. And people, he refused to, he, um, he refused to condemn the intern, the internment of Japanese Americans. This was like crazy stuff. And he was still crazy when he was actually president. But when it comes to some of the scariest policies that he had talked about, he didn't follow through with them. So I was crying when I was thinking about my parents and God forbid if Trump follows through on some of these anti-Muslim ideas, what was really interesting the following morning, because my parents had already gone to sleep because for them, it wasn't existential, I guess. So I talked to my dad and I'm just like panicking. Oh my God, like what's, you know, what's going to happen? My dad just sat me down and he's like, Shadi, cool down. Because he had the perspective as someone who had grown up in an authoritarian regime. He's like, Shadi, you've been writing about democracy you believe, this is what you've been talking about in the case of the Middle East, that even if outcomes seem scary to you in an election, if that's what the people decide, then democracy is the right to make the wrong choice. So people decided to vote for Donald Trump. That was their choice. And you have to respect that. And then you do what you can. Um, as, as a citizen, you try to change things next time around, but you shouldn't be freaking out. And that, I think that, that really just stuck in my memory. But I think there is a kind of wisdom. If you've seen how bad things can get in other contexts, it just makes you more appreciative that, and even like January 6th, I mean, we, that was a test for American democracy. We came through. We were resilient. Biden was elected. Donald Trump was voted out. Like, there's another way to look at these things. My own view, which I think jibes at least the Venn diagrams overlap considerably about democracy, is that you know there's, the, there's that famous poli sci political science paper from the 1950s, I think, about how democracy is what you have between parties, not within parties. And um, I'm a democratic minimalist in the sense that. I mean, I agree with you. I, I agree with your sense of democratic minimalism, right? And it's very much the, um, the the sort of the Burkean view of, you know, there's this there's a distinction. But I talk about it on here a lot. There's this, you know, the sort of the, the Hayek talks about this in his Nobel Prize speech, I think, about the difference between the English and the French Garden. Um, and the English Garden is the sort of the Burkean view that you create a space for freedom, and you protect it. But it's a space with no ultimate end, no ultimate destination in mind. And the sort of French progressive left-wing view is 
no, we're all marching to some destination in the future and we're all going to get there. Right. And it's, it's the, dis- the metaphors that d- distinguish between two groups in the Anglo-American tradition or in the Western tradition of marchers towards the sunny uplands of history and, and uh, space protectors, right? And, and so there's a zone of liberty. And that's my view of democracy is that you protect democracy as a zone of liberty, but then you let everybody be who they want to be and do what they want to do in, ter- in terms of communities as well. And, um, but I also think a huge part of our problem is that we are trying to use democracy to fix problems that are not well suited to be fixed by democracy. And so I would get rid of primaries if I could. I just think primaries are bad. Um, we are the, uh, Elaine K. Mark is your colleague, is the person who, conv- you know, who points this out first to me, which is that we are the only... And, and we are the first, and I believe still only, the French model is a little weird, um, advanced industrialized democracy in the world where the parties have voluntarily given up the ability to pick their own candidates. And I want more institutions that act as circuit breakers, as filters, as legitimizers, um, as screens and as editors. And so I want the parties to, to, take, to be internally less democratic. And when people, I say that to people, people look at me like I'm crazy. And then I'm like, well, would you want a Marine unit to vote on what hill to take? Would you, you th- do like businesses take a poll or have a vote of everybody on the assembly line about what products to make? Most institutions are not democratic, starting with the family. And that's fine. And a democracy is about the space between institutions or um, in particular the parties. And so to turn it into the form of a question, isn't that also a really good argument for more federalism about sending things down to the most local level possible? Because you can have majorities in certain areas in local areas that are minorities in national areas. And when you nationalize all democratic contexts, you basically put all minority regional minorities at risk. But if you contain things to like the state of Michigan, the Arab vote is really important in the state of Arab American vote. It's really important in the state of Michigan. It's more of a rounding error in the country as a whole. But let Arab Americans vote on how they want to live in Michigan. That doesn't affect people who live in Wisconsin. And the more you can push these decisions down to the most local level possible, the more people get to live the way they want to live. What's so bad about that? No, I mean, I, I, very sympathetic. I mean, I'm I'm generally a skeptic of the centralized state. And I think that, you know, we've seen how the modern nation state, you know, it always wants more for itself. It accumulates power, it bureaucratizes, and that can be fine up to a point, but not to open up a, a different topic. But, you know, I've seen how a very strong state in the Middle Eastern context it interferes in things like, so religion, there are ministries of religious affairs in almost every Muslim majority country in the Middle East, but also elsewhere. Um, You know, so should, should the state have a bureaucratic institution that regulates religious production and religious knowledge? So, once you start thinking so much about the ends of politics and how you want to educate people to have the right ideas, and then it starts to infiltrate, let's say the public or the the public education system, 
or the 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 bureaucracy the public be, the bureaucracy that should be um, that should try to be at least somewhat neutral on those you know really in, in, intense personal religious questions. All of that makes me nervous. So at some at some point we have to think about making the state less dominant because if the state is dominant, then every election is about winning the prize. It's about getting control right. of the levers of power because once you have that, you can use this state to change the culture. And everyone is doing this now. They want to win because then they can actually roll back wokeness or make people more woke. And um, and one way of addressing that is to lessen the stakes by distributing power away from the center. How you do that, you know, that's a little bit more challenging. So I definitely am sympathetic to whatever we can do to um, to localize things. That said, local government, like, the, you know, do you want to live in a place like S San Francisco where people dominate and they have, let's say, you know, these these somewhat crazy or radical left wing types are in control and then they have even more power. I can also see how someone would be like, well, localism is great if the people you have locally are sane. What happens when they destroy, like they just self-sabotage their own city and just, you know, but on, uh, but, yeah, you yeah. move, you move or you have a democratic fight. I yeah, mean, like yeah. I would rather the people who run San Francisco screw up San Francisco than the country. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. That's a good, between those two choices for sure. I mean, one, but I guess one question I'd, I, I maybe do disagree a bit on prime. So on primaries, I'd be curious what you think about this because, you know, you mentioned Burke and yes, the Burkean perspective and the small seat conservative perspective is that good things don't go together, that there are, there are trade-offs. But one of the reasons we moved to a primary system is because we saw some major weaknesses and drawbacks with the party deciding. It, it's not as if, I mean, people thought this through and they had debates about a better ways to organize their, the, the party internally. And there was a notion that you address some of the elite dominance and the machine politics by giving more of a say to primary voters to choose their own leaders internally. So yes, we are seeing the drawbacks of the primary, the, the primary approach. But if we go back to the way things were, we'll have other problems. Like there is no solution that doesn't create a new set of problems. So it's always like, be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, in terms of careful what you wish for, it's like Democrats boosting crazy election deniers, you know, because they think they'd be easier to beat and then they end up winning and like, oh crap, what do we do? Um, I don't think it's a cure-all and I don't think we can. I mean, to be honest, this is my, you know, if, if I had, if I could blink, if I could make a wish and make it happen, I'd get rid of primaries. I'd go back to, you know, broker, I go back to party conventions, nominating conventions or something like that. Um, I'd also get rid of a lot of the campaign finance rules that basically neutered the parties. I, one of the reasons why we have so much partisanship in this country is because we have such weak parties. We, the parties cannot be responsible stewards of their own brand. And that's, and so people internalize partisanship um, and negative polarization in ways where in the past, like the parties would say, you know, look, we're just not going to, we have a long-term interest in the Republican or Democratic brand. We're not for the sake of one election going to put some crazy, you know, bloody toga waving demagogue on the ballot. 
And like, so I don't think Bernie Sanders should have been allowed to run in the primaries. I don't think that, that Donald Trump should have been allowed to run in the primaries. When the Brits experimented with this, you got, you got Jeremy Corbyn because they basically lowered the price to voting in the nominating convention to like a one pound, uh, you know, fee. And you got, you emptied the, the fringes of, of the left you know, ran in to, to nominate this guy and it caused the liberals problems for a decade. Um, I want tight, I want tighter screens on things. Now that said, yeah, there were abuses of the smoke filled rooms and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, the, the people who ran the smoke filled rooms were held accountable if they screwed up, you know, we don't ever hold the voters accountable to, to sh- Right. They just they're always saying, oh, well, it's because you didn't dry hard enough or whatever. (laughs) And I I would much rather have individual people with names, powers that be called Ted or Phil or Sarah that you can punish for letting bad things happen than sort of this generalized miasma of like, oh, we're just vibe merchants and we're going to go with whichever way the mobs go. But I'm not going to get what I want. So like jungle primary systems, I think are better than the current system. Um, because there's a mediating effect. I have to be very clear about this. I am against mandatory voting, mm. but I think it's a really useful thought exercise um, or thought experiment because it used to be that people, candidates would run to the base of their party during the, to get the primary nominate, the nomination of their party, and then they'd run to the center. Now both parties are convinced they can win by just turning up the gain on their base. If everybody voted all of a sudden the median voter attracting the median voter is much more attractive than attracting, you know, the base voter. Cause there's fewer of them. Bell curves are fattest in the middle. And so as a thought experiment, that would be one way of, of, of getting politicians to be incentivized to reach common ground and reach for the majority position on things. The problem we have today is that, Politicians still have the same incentives they always had about getting reelected, but the way you get reelected is by winning your nomination, your primary fight, and then you just sort of cruise because of the big sword and gerrymandering and all that. If you could fix the system that, again, re-incentivize people to figure out what is the majority position on things, regardless of party ideology, um, you would get a moderating effect. And I think jungle primaries do that because the most popular freaks are actually not majority or even plurality candidates, they're the ones who get um, um, very intense supporters. Like Sarah Palin was nobody's second choice <laughs> in the Republican <laughs> primary, right? Like you either voted for Sarah Palin or you weren't going to vote at all. And if you have a jungle primary thing, yeah, it'll create more vanilla candidates, but I, I could live with more vanilla candidates, right? Yeah, that, that does sound appealing, vanilla candidates, but I think that a lot of people get bored and they see politics as sort of what you were saying earlier. It becomes part of this religious conviction. And so the idea of a vanilla, vanilla candidates, especially with, you know, hot, very well-educated uh, liberals, you know, in places like DC, New York, I just, the, the same, I, I guess. So it'll suck for them. I, That's fine with me. You know? <laughs> we just have too many people who are bored and they find that they treat politics as the outlet for their anger, mm-hmm. their frustration, for their hopes and their dreams. Part of this has to do with what I think we talked about a bit last time, which is the decline of religiosity, yeah. you know, is not always, is 
not always a good thing. The kind of Christian identification and observance means that people have this vacuum in their lives and they have to fill it with alternatives and the alternatives aren't always better. And um, so, but I, yeah, vanilla candidates, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I think that gets, I mean, not to get too deep into the theology and stuff, but at the end of the day, the unity of goodness thing, which we were talking about before, that's a fundamentally religious outlook, right? I mean, that is, that is more about like, there are all sorts of strains of Christianity, of, of Islam. I'm, I mean, you're more expert on that stuff than I am that do talk about unity of goodness, right? I mean, the, the, the whole idea of transcendence is kind of the unity of goodness. And certainly the kingdom of heaven on earth, how could you have trade-offs in the kingdom of heaven on earth? The whole point is, is that all good things are going to go together. And I think a lot of, I personally think a lot of progressivism comes out of that social gospel tradition. Um, but we're seeing a lot of that with this Christian nationalism garbage coming up on, on the right as well. And I, I agree with you that people are attracted to politics because they're bored. And I, and I mean, bored in more of a, like, fundamental kind of metaphysical way, right? It's like languor or ennui or whatever highfalutin French word we want to come up with. But if people had more going on with their actual personal lives and their family lives and their communities, they would look to Washington less. And I think this gets to the point you were talking about before. My standard sort of analogy is like, this is America right now is sort of like the UK during the 1600s where the whole idea of having, if you were Protestant, of having a Catholic on the throne was horrifying. And the whole idea of having a Protestant on the throne if you were Catholic was horrifying. And even though it wouldn't affect you personally very much at all necessarily, it just, it was a way of signaling that the universe was out of balance and that everything was going wrong. And that's how we view the presidency now, is it's almost a kind of idolatry where if the wrong person is in the White House, that means the moral arc of the universe is going wrong. Politics just shouldn't matter that much. It shouldn't. Um, you know, and it's interesting, the, 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 um, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, which Obama later appropriated as the arc of history bends towards justice. I mean, that's originally from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And um, it's interesting that that was a Christian statement. If you look at some of the context, um, that's where he was coming from. So it's interesting how ideas which we don't normally think of as, as explicitly Christian ideas, they've become almost these secularized theological concepts and people don't, they don't understand the provenance of these ideas in these terms. But yes, progressivism does draw on a kind of Christian way of looking at the world. If you take it several steps further and, you know, there are interesting um, similar similarities that you can draw there. Um, and I think also, I remember there was this really interesting piece by, uh, Charles Fain Lemon, who was a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Um, it was basically that a lot of these liberal elites, they're very well educated and they don't have families increasingly, or they wait, they wait until their late thirties or forties to have families. So for them, boredom is in part about being single. And so a lot of these things are tied to, so you said you should have, your family and your community, your church, local institutions playing more of a role. But because, because of shifts that have to do with secularization, 
there is a growing, there are a growing number of Americans who don't really have those anchors in their own lives. Yeah. I mean, I think the life of Julia thing, and I don't know if you remember this and, but like for conservatives, this was just a huge deal back in the day, simpler times when the Obama campaign came out with this. Oh, pictogram thing about the life of Julia. And it was like a one page and it was like, and it was amazing. I used to make back when I was a, a conservative right winger in good standing and not the traitor Trump derangement syndrome, you know, zombie that I am now. <laughs> um, according to a lot of people, at least uh, I used to have so much fun with the life of Julia thing because it was such a great, like, so my wife for years, I've been pressuring her to write a book called my husband, the state. Hmm. Um, as a play on uh, the knock book, Our Enemy of the State, because the state in Western democracies in many ways is fulfilling the traditional role of husbands and fathers. And I don't mean this in some horrible, condescending, sexist way. I just think that like literally it, the absence of fathers and the absence of husbands creates a need and the state is stepping in. And then there are people who are more aggressive in their ideological defense of it. But then you have this Life of Julia thing where Every panel begins under uh, under President Obama, Julia is born. <laughs> and according to this taxing, under President Obama, Julia goes to Head Start. Under President Obama, Julia gets a Pell scholarship or whatever. Under President Obama, small business. Under President, all the way, all the way to the end where she gets under President Obama, she gets to live, uh, gets to volunteer in a community garden, and. Nowhere in this thing was, oh, and under President Obama, Julie decides to have a child, right? Nowhere in this thing was a husband, a father, a family, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, any of that stuff. It was just the individual and the state and nothing in between. And I think that this is, it's, it's, this is part of it is a structural thing that is not just a problem with progressivism and all that kind of stuff. But there is this notion that, you know, when that, you know, I remember when Hillary Clinton said that civil society, she writes this in It Takes a Village. She says, civil society is just a political science term for the things we all do together, like government, right? That was that line that you had. Government is just another term for things that we all do together. No, it's not. And when you, when you, so the rise of a strong central state actually increases individualism, but it could it destroys all the yeasty intermediating institutions that give life meaning and context. And I think the right doesn't understand this almost as, because the right loves to talk about individualism, or at least it used to. And the left likes to talk about community, but it defines community as adherence to the state. And the reality is, is that real community is the stuff that is not touched by government. And, and I think that you get this mindset in some part, because there was this idea that the government is going to fill the holes in our souls. And I just don't think that's what government can do. I mean, it's like government does a lot of important things, but it, it can't give you meaning. It can't love you. And um, I think because the institutions that normally love us, family, faith, friends, community, religion, all that stuff, are, are, are dying on the vine, that hunger for a quest for community, as Robert Nisbet called it, is being applied to national politics. And that screws up people. Yeah. Yeah. I had forgotten about the life of Julia. It's really a a remarkable illustration of this. I I have a vague recollection that a lot of conservatives were like freaking out about it, but so much has happened in the interim that it just was sort of memory hold for me. But I do remember- It was like that and Pajama Boy. Remember, those were our two big things. I don't know. Who was Pajama Boy? 
Oh, Google Pajama okay. Boy. Pajama Boy was great. It was like this this white. So the woke white liberal men that you complain about, yeah. right? This was him in say when he was like nineteen, and he was it was an ad about signing up for Obamacare, and it was him, and it was sort of like it was I can't remember the exact phrasing of the ad, but it was basically like uh, staying home with my hot chocolate and talking about enrolling on Obamacare, and um, and sort of like you referenced the tan suit thing earlier. I mean, like this, these were like these cultural touchstones for critics of Obama that we had great fun with. Yeah. And, um, but the life of Julia thing, I, I think reflects an actual metaphysical sort of cradle to grave understanding of the role of the individual. It's probably not intended that way, but the unconscious biases that made everyone think, Oh, this looks great. Um, sort of like the stuff that, um, uh, what David Shore talks about where, like when they test ads, the more the sort of progressive activists like it that they that they show in house, the more likely it will be to actually send voters to the Republicans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, like like saying Latinx, right, or saying birthing person. You say these things to normal people, and they're like, "This isn't my party. I'll go to the other guys." Right, and I think there's a lot of that stuff that is subliminal at work here. Anyway, I'm rambling. I apologize. No, yeah, it, it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just making me sad thinking about all this. <laughs> I was going to say something profound, but I probably forgot what it was. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I, I hijacked you. No, I, I, no. I'm, I'm still you know, out of practice. Um, no, I guess I was just thinking about Pajama Boy. I was trying to like picture that or something. Um, I, I'll, I'll email, I just Google Pajama yeah. Boy. Oh, You'll see what I okay, mean. Okay, one thing a, I didn't want to say. I think everything you're pointing to, it gets at the condescension that a lot of people associate with the Democratic Party. Because if you're talking about the state as the locus of public life, of community, the state is meant to be so central in people's lives, then by extension, it means that you have a particular conception of the good that you think everyone should subscribe to, that there has to be some overarching power that actually makes decisions around these key life moments. And in a sense, not imposes, but shapes, nudges. That's maybe the the more subtle version, but then some people actually want to push this on you, like, you know, uh, pronouns or whatever. That should be, you know, a voluntary thing. If people feel comfortable using it, they should. But no one should be compelled to put pronouns in their email signature. Maybe that's where we're going. We'll have to wait and see. So I think that, you know, and as bad as as bad as member the Republican Party is today, and as bad as the Trumpists are, I don't get a sense that they they're not like lecturing us on this is how to live a good life. They're just being resentful. They have their grievances. They're just fulminating about various things, which maybe in some ways is worse if it spills into extra legal activity or violence or whatever it might be. But I never get a sense that conservatives are trying to change who I am and how I live in the way that liberal, like well-educated liberals do. And I think that is an important difference that I wish more people in the democratic party could be aware of because it is pushing a lot of people away. And we're going to see, I I'm pretty sure we're going to see some evidence of that next week when we start getting the election results. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it'll be a shellacking if that's the correct word, but um, it's not going to be good. All right. Well, on that 
light note of punditry. Um, <laughs> Shadi Amid, I really want to thank you for doing this. Um, and um, uh, give me the full title of the book so I don't screw it up. Yeah, sure. The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. There you go. Uh, this podcast historically moves books, so I hope it does well, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I am I, I am and remain a Fukuyama guy. Um, yeah. So I think he was right in the end of history. Um, it's just we're going to spend the rest of history arguing about it. Yeah, then you'll probably like the book. All right, my friend, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonah. Okay, so Shadi Amid has left the studio. Um, I enjoyed talking to him. We were obviously in some violent agreement. Um, and... Uh, um, actually, it was kind of nonviolent agreement, um, which was kind of nice and kind of gives me hope. I think he's a good example of how um, at least the sociology of left and right have changed to a certain degree insofar as I can have um, a more fruitful conversation of someone left of center who actually believes in sort of uh, basic American liberalism and um, sort of fact-based discourse than I can with a lot of people on my quote unquote own side. And I think there are a bunch of us who kind of feel this way. I, I, um, 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 I talked about this a little bit with Sam Harris on his podcast. You know, it's just like, there's this weird new center that um, because of its epistemology um, sticks out in ways that we would have been sort of hostile partisans against each other a while back. Um um, there's an alternative theory that Shadi is just simply going the way of all neocons as he realizes the limits of the left and moves rightward. But I will leave him to defend himself on that charge the next time he's on. Um, again, we are recording this on November 3rd. You're hearing this uh, later. And um, so keep all of that in mind. And um, thanks again to everybody for all the nice notes. Oh, oh, there's one other thing I just wanted to bring up as a matter of housekeeping. Um, we've had various issues with, um, the feed from Apple podcasts, um, shows skipping shows doing weird things. I don't want to like, uh, incept specific complaints into your, uh, your minds on this, but, um, we are aware of it. We are, um, every day we leave a, a burning, uh, paper bag of dog feces on the front steps of Stitcher trying to deal with this. Um, but the more info we have, the quicker we can get this fixed. Um, so if in the comments you're having any of these kinds of issues, could you just um, give us like, as, be as specific as you can be about what the problem is, at what, what was the time code in the podcast when you had a problem, when it, when it was skipped or stopped or whatever, um, and let us know. And also if you could just say in the comment what device you're listening on, you know, all that stuff, app, device, uh, system, like what iOS or operating system you're using, all that kind of, any, any specific granular information that we can have to figure out what the problem is and how to fix it, that would be great. And if you could put in the comment as well, whether you'd be willing to be uh, contacted um, to talk about it further, that would be cool. But you don't have to talk to us further than this. But if you, if you can identify, if you're having problems uh, that sound like this, we're talking about you, um, if you can just let us know in some detail uh, that would be super helpful to us because there's nothing uh, we care about more than the quality of the dispatch and the remnant experience. So with that, uh, thanks very much, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. Jonah, this is a podcast. Come on, man.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.